If you enjoy Champions for Children, be sure to check out the new podcast from Nemours Children's Health, Well Beyond Medicine. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts or at NemoursWellBeyond.org to continue hearing the stories of anything and everything related to the 80% of child health impacts that occur outside the doctor's office. And now, the episode of Champions for Children you requested. Enjoy! Pharmacogenomics is how a person's genetics, their genes that they have that have been passed down from their parents, affects response to drugs. And the response to a drug may be enhanced by certain variants in a person's genetic profile, or adverse effects may be more prevalent in persons who have certain genetic variants. Welcome to the Nemours Champions for Children podcast. I'm Carol Vassar, and that's Dr. Catherine Blake. Dr. Blake is the director and a principal research scientist within the Nemours Center for Pharmacogenomics and Translational Research. In our occasional podcast series on precision medicine here at Nemours, we're examining pharmacogenomics from two different but closely linked perspectives research, and clinical application. In this episode, we'll talk with Dr. Blake and Dr. Ed Muji, PhD research scientist and pharmacogenomics lab manager, about the projects they're working on that have the potential for real-world applications specific to a person's genetic profile. That's an important evolution in treatment, according to Dr. Muji. Pharmacogenomics has the potential to improve response to drug therapy, also reduce unnecessary drug exposure if we know beforehand that a a particular patient's genetic profile will not make them a good candidate for a therapy. We can also hope to reduce or eliminate unintended side effects and shorten time to symptom relief, combined reducing healthcare utilization and improving safety of the drug therapy and quality of life, all at the level of the individual patient. So this is a really important initiative for Nemours and for the children we serve. Catherine, give us a little bit of the background, the history from the time basically you got on board until where we are today. So yeah, so this is, I love telling this story because it's so interesting. So when I was brought into Nemours to help develop clinical research, my training and experience was in the field of asthma. And so I did a lot of clinical research for asthma for about 10 years or so. And then we brought in, and I I definitely want to give credit to Dr. John Lima. We brought him in, in the position that I have now as director of the Center for Pharmacogenomics and Translational Research. He had done some pharmacogenomics work at his previous institution, which was the University of Tennessee, also actually in the area of patients with asthma. But when he came, very coincidentally, the American Lung Association had put out a request for applications to build a network to study asthma and its treatments. We applied for that and we were awarded a center. So we have been a center for the American Lung Association Airways Clinical Research Centers Network since 1999. So coming up on 23 years. 
And we've been a very, very successful center as part of that network. So one of the very first studies that we did was looking at the influenza vaccine in patients with asthma. And Dr. Lima said, with this very first study, we're going to start to collect DNA samples from every individual that participates in studies as part of the network. So working with Dr. Muji and, and myself, we put together a viral repository here at the Morse, where we became the bank that held the DNA samples from everybody in these clinical trials. So he had the foresight to start to collect the DNA very, very early on. But one of our very first studies in which we had some traction with pharmacogenomics that has really, I think, impacted the field was an asthma study in children looking at the effect of a drug called lansoprazole on asthma control. Now, lansoprazole is a drug that's used normally for people who have heartburn and take it to reduce their heart, their level of heartburn and acid in their stomach. Now, you'd wonder, why, why on earth would you give an asthma patient a drug that's normally used for heartburn? And the thought was that some patients with asthma who are not well controlled may be having reflux into their airways from the stomach acid. And that might then be causing them to have what is perceived as asthma symptoms. So the idea was that if we can give them a treatment to control this acid, maybe we'll improve their symptoms of asthma. What we found out is not only did the drug not work for controlling asthma symptoms, but it also increased the risk of side effects. And the side effects were sore throat, sinusitis, and bronchitis. And that got us thinking because we knew that these drugs, these proton pump inhibitors, as lenzoprazole is known, increase the risk of patients developing community-acquired pneumonia. So having an increase in some of these respiratory effects was not totally surprising. And this is where Dr. Lima decided that using the DNA that we collected as part of this study, we would look and see if there was an impact on the individual's pharmacogenomic variants that they have and the risk of these side effects. Now, lenzoprazole, along with some of the other proton pump inhibitors, and Dr. Muji will share with you some very interesting research that he's been doing with the same class of drugs, but they're metabolized in the liver by enzymes that are coded by genes that have a lot of variants. Some people have variants that make the enzymes more active. Some people have variants that make the the enzyme less active. And in this case, what we found was that one of those genes was in patients who had these side effects was less active and they would have been higher blood levels of the drug in their body, which predisposed them to have these adverse effects. So that was really interesting. So we found out this important relationship between a drug that's very commonly used and somebody's individual pharmacogenomic profile. From that, we looked at some other areas of asthma control and found the same thing, that this drug actually, in people who metabolized it more slowly because of the variant that they had, had worse asthma control. And then working with Dr. Muji, Dr. Lima and Dr. Muji, and Dr. Francesi down in Orlando, and I'm not going to steal Ed's thunder, but the work progressed, and 
as a result of some of the work that we did down there, we became involved in a genomic network called IGNITE. And IGNITE stands for Implementing Genomics in Clinical Practice. And we partnered with the University of Florida on a very small study looking at these drugs for patients who had gastroesophageal reflux disease. That very small trial then led to us becoming a significant partner with the University of Florida when they applied for a renewal of this IGNITE grant in 2016. And from that grant, we are now doing a very large nationwide pharmacogenomic study that involves six centers around the country looking at the use of opioids for acute pain and a class of drugs known as serotonin reuptake inhibitors for the treatment of depression in children. So Nemours is the main enrolling site for pediatric patients for this large network trial in pharmacogenomics. And that's where we stand today. And I mentioned Dr. Lima, who was the director before me. And what we like to see come out of our clinical trials are clinical guidelines. And so the work that we have done with proton pump inhibitors actually led to the development of clinical guidelines through the Clinical Pharmacogenomics Implementation Consortium. And those are now published. And so the Food and Drug Administration, for instance, uses those when they update labeling for drugs and things like that. That's a big deal to be able to have guidelines developed, providing clinicians with very clear information on the science behind recommendations that Ed has talked about how to increase or lower a dose based on somebody's genetic profile. In addition to research into asthma, noted by Dr. Blake, Dr. Muji has worked hand-in-hand with Nemours Gastroenterology Department Head, Dr. Jim Franciosi, on alleviating gastroesophageal reflux disease, more commonly known as GERD, in children, which happens to be one of the most common pediatric GI disorders. The first line of defense for treating GERD is a class of medications known as proton pump inhibitors, or PPIs. PPIs help to decrease stomach acid, allowing time for esophageal tissue to repair itself. But up to 30% of patients with GERD can fail to respond to PPIs. Why? That's the question Dr. Muji tries to answer with his research. We hypothesize that um, some of this failure to respond may be due to patients who are carrying these CYP2C19 variants. CYP2C19, that's a gene involved in the formation and metabolism of various molecules and chemicals, including drugs such as PPIs. Proton pump inhibitors, or PPIs, function by inactivating the proton potassium ATPase, gastric acid proton pump, that's expressed in the parietal cells of the stomach. They do this through a, a covalent inactivation mechanism that forms a covalent bond with the active site and requires a turnover of the modified protein and synthesis of new protein to reverse the inactivation. PPIs are primarily metabolized by the hepatic cytochrome CYP2C19. Uh, currently, there are 67 alleles of CYP2C19 that are known. Alleles? Those are alternative versions of a specific gene. Alleles, for example, can influence your eye color. According to the Jackson Laboratory in Farmington, Connecticut, 
Complex combinations of alleles can also influence how we react to medications, like, you guessed it, PPIs. Of these, 18 alleles are known to produce enzymes that are non-functional, so they have no activity whatsoever. And one allele is known to result in increased gene transcription and enzyme expression, which results in a net increase in CYP2C19 activity. So typically, individuals who carry non-functional alleles of CYP2C19 are called intermediate or poor metabolizers, depending on whether they carry one or two copies of the non-functional allele, relative to normal metabolizers who do not carry any allelic variants that affect enzymatic activity. Um, As you would predict, individuals who carry non-functional variants of CYP2C19 tend to have higher plasma concentrations of substrate drug than normal metabolizers. And frequently, this can result in inappropriate levels of systemic exposure, leading to an increase in drug toxicity or side effects. On the opposite end of the spectrum are the rapid or ultra-rapid metabolizers who carry one or two copies of the increased function variant. And as expected, these individuals tend to have reduced plasma concentrations of drug and can be prone to poor response to therapy. So for GERD, the primary tool used by gastroenterologists to diagnose GERD is a pH impedance probe test. For this test, the gastroenterologist positions the probe in the child's esophagus at a defined distance from the lower esophageal sphincter, and the probe typically remains in place for 24 hours. Um, During this time, the probe records the number of acid reflux episodes and the episode duration. From this, we're able to calculate the duration of the longest episode, the number of episodes that last more than five minutes, the total time and percentage of time for which the pH is less than four, and the average acid clearance time. Patients who have an acid exposure time of greater than 4% are typically thought of as having GERD. So in our first study, to examine the association between acid exposure outcomes from pH probe tests and carriage of the CYP219 variants that we discussed previously. Retrospectively, we looked at the result pH probe test results from a number of individuals, and we had genetic material that we were able to obtain from the pathology department in the form of FFPE tissue blocks. So we compared the patient's acid exposure times with whether or not they carried um, these various alleles of CYP2C19. And what we found is that the acid exposure times were typically increased twofold in individuals who carry the overactive or increased activity variant of CYP2C19 allele relative to individuals who did not carry the increased activity. This is an important outcome, and it suggests that in these individuals, they might not be getting enough because of the increased activity of their CYP2C19 alleles, and acid exposure times in these individuals could potentially be reduced by increasing PPI dosage. So this is important because individuals who who fail PPI therapy for GERD typically have to resort to anti-reflux surgery to manage their GERD symptoms. And that leads us into our second study in which we examined association between anti-reflux surgery in children and carriage of the CYP2C19 variants. And what we found is that CYP2C19 poor and intermediate metabolizers. So in other words, these are the individuals that have higher levels of exposure to PPI because they metabolize the drug more poorly. We found that they're eightfold less likely to have to resort to anti-reflux surgery relative to normal metabolizers. 
And we hypothesize that this is potentially due to their increased systemic exposure to PPIs. On the other hand, individuals who carried the increased activity variants of the CYP2C19 gene were 1.2-fold more likely to have anti-reflux surgery relative to normal metabolizers. So a logical conclusion from this study, although we haven't tested it in clinical trial yet, is that by increasing the systemic exposure to PPIs to the level seen in poor metabolizers, we could potentially reduce the number of children who fail PPI therapy and progress to anti-reflux surgery by over ninefold. That's a, a very has very significant impl- implications for exposure to unnecessary surgery, reduced medical expenditures on medical care, and improved quality of life for these kids. Dr. Muji is also working with Dr. Franciosi on another study related to eosinophilic esophagitis, or EOE. That's a chronic disease in which white blood cells, eosinophils, build up in the esophagus. This causes damage, inflammation, pain, and even trouble swallowing. Dr. Muji. It causes significant suffering in the children because they have chest pain and heartburn and eventually leads to food impaction in the esophagus, which requires a trip to the emergency room to correct. So PPIs are also a therapy for eosinophilic esophagitis, but not because of their anti-acid properties, but because they have anti-inflammatory properties as well, which is something that was recently shown in in a couple of studies within the eosinophilic esophagitis field. This was interesting for us, and we've looked at genetic variants that are associated with the inflammatory response in the eosinophilic esophagitis, and we found some significant associations with variants in a transcription factor that's down below the receptor involved in propagating the inflammatory signal in EOE. So our overall goal in this project is to be able to predict which patients will respond to PPI since various clinical centers report between a 25 and 80% response rate to proton pump inhibitors for treating EOE. We want to understand what genetic variants contribute to this variability. At the moment, we've looked at, at 35 different genetic variants in the inflammatory signaling cascade within EOE patients. And using this information in combination with phenotypes from the medical record, and outcomes from endoscopy, we can predict with an 80% accuracy at this point in time, which patients will respond to PPI before they receive their first dose of PPI. So in the future, we hope to be able to drive this algorithm up to a clinical utility with a a 95 to 98% accuracy by increasing the number of genetic variants that we use to inform our algorithm. So these are exciting ongoing studies, and and we're looking forward to moving that project forward. What are some of the limitations and the challenges you're facing in the research that you're doing? Catherine? Well, to be honest with you, I think one of the biggest challenges is getting people to recognize that pediatric patients don't respond to drugs necessarily the same way adults do. So even with the network trial that I mentioned, Ignite, it was a struggle to get the network as a whole to recognize pediatric patients are really important to include in this big trial where we're looking at opioid response in patients after they have surgery in the treatment of acute pain and the use of certain antidepressants for 
at children and adolescents with depression. So that's almost the greatest hurdle. You know, I think many people have heard of the All of Us program, which is limited to adults. And they're going to be doing a lot of genomic analysis in that. And so there are talks of including children, but that hasn't happened yet. So I think one of the biggest hurdles is making sure the children are represented in these trials. As Ed mentioned, many of the trials are very small and it's hard to enroll. And if we don't take advantage of trials that are already planning to do pharmacogenomic studies by including children, it's certainly a missed opportunity. Now, you mentioned other areas of diversity and certainly looking at differences by race and ethnicity is key. As I mentioned, we did a study in asthma that was looking specifically at African-Americans because we know their response seems to be different than whites. And so it is important to include other racial groups and it, research in general, it's sometimes difficult to include patients who are minorities. Some of it's because they have less access to health care, so they don't come in contact with opportunities to participate in research studies that may involve pharmacogenomics. So that is a challenge that every study now is looking at to make sure that we do enroll a diverse patient population. And in fact, the IGNITE network has been charged specifically with enrolling patients from underserved communities so that we do get that representation. Ed, any limitations, challenges that you see in the pharmacogenomics research area? Yeah, typically the, the biggest challenge we have is simply the number of patients that we can study. I mean, typically a pharmacogenetic study will enroll 100 patients or so, which is typically what budgets can support. Sometimes it can be difficult to find the, the number of individuals that have a particular genetic variant in a study population that that's small, depending on the frequency of the variants in the population. So it's going to become increasingly more important to have larger and larger studies to really get to the point where we understand completely how the total of a person's genome is influencing drug response and get to the point where we can say we have achieved precision medicine approaches for significant numbers of therapies. As Ed said, it's really hard to enroll enough people in studies. I would love to see at Nemours that we would approach every patient and their biological parents to contribute DNA to be included in a biobank. Now, we have an excellent biobank at Nemours that Dr. Fananich and Dr. Arn mentioned on the previous podcast that could house these DNA samples. Then they would be available to researchers in concert with the data that we have in our electronic medical record where we would have drug information where medications they've been prescribed, the doses that they have been prescribed, and what outcomes that they have had. But it would certainly be a way forward to try and improve the care of the children who are seen within our health system. Dr. Catherine Blake is the director and a principal research scientist within the Nemours Center for Pharmacogenomics and Translational Research. She was joined in conversation about pharmacogenomic research by Dr. Ed Muji, PhD research scientist and pharmacogenomics lab manager. They are based in Jacksonville, Florida. 
Translating research into clinical application? That's happening here at Nemours as well. More on that in the next episode of the Nemours Champions for Children podcast. Please join us. Your ideas for future podcasts are always welcome. Simply email podcast at Nemours.org. That's podcast at Nemours.org. We'll work together to get you and or your team onto the schedule to record interviews remotely for release in the coming months. Thank you to our new production team, Cheryl Mon, Che Parker, and Rachel Salas Silverman. Our music is courtesy of Blue Dot Sessions in Turner's Falls, Massachusetts. You may find the podcast on Nemours Net and the Nemours Now app, anywhere you find your other favorite podcasts, and by telling your smart speaker to play the Champions for Children podcast. On behalf of Dr. Catherine Blake and Dr. Ed Muji, I'm Carol Vassar, and we thank you for listening to this edition of the Nemours Champions for Children podcast. Until next time, please stay safe, stay well, and thank you for all you do for the children and families we serve. <laughs>